You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Before we welcome Pastor Kevin to the stage, please join me in today's scripture reading from Matthew 22, 1 through 14. And if you're able, please stand. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning once again. My name is Kevin, if you're visiting with us, and I'm one of the pastors here. One of the things that I love about our church, I love about you, is that as a church, uh, we've always been pretty purple in regards to our politics. And what I mean by that is we've always had people who, some who identify more with the Republican Party, some who identify more with the Democratic Party, some who lean more conservative, some who lean more liberal. And I don't think that's a problem. I think that's something worth celebrating, something amazing, because people have different experiences, life experiences, perspectives, all sorts of things. But it demonstrates for the world and to one another the power of the gospel to unite people across very different life you know, perspectives. And I think it's beautiful. I also recognize it's challenging. It's especially challenging on a week like this. Some of you here this morning are feeling a great sense of relief, joy, hope, excitement, and others of you are feeling a a sense of grief, of fear, of anger. We look at this and, you know, I've been pastoring for, I guess, close to 15 years, and uh, over those 15 years, it just seems like the cracks in the church along political lines, they're getting wider and wider. And so how do we navigate this together? I think the answer to that question, what sustained us in the past through turbulent times is what will sustain us in the future. That God, he's given us his spirit and he's given us his word. And we as his people, regardless of our politics, where we come from, we come together on Sunday mornings and we put ourselves under his word, recognizing its supreme authority in our life. And when that serves as the true north for our lives, we find a way to walk in unity and love, even when we might disagree on a number of 
important, not essential, but important things. And so what we're doing this morning, as we open the word, that's what we're praying, God. God, unite us in the truth. And so I want to pray that before we jump into the text. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to your word today. I pray that we would have a spirit of not just receptivity to it, but that we would submit to it. I pray, Lord, for us as a people that you would unite us. I mean, you already have, but just experientially, we would walk in unity with those we disagree with, charity, compassion. I pray that we would be so fixed on who you are, what you're doing in the world, and how you've invited us to be a part of it, that it would be very clear to the world around us that that's the number one ruling passion in our lives. So Lord, awaken us once again to the glory of your gospel and the hope that you've given us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this parable is an interesting one. Lindsay read it. I've never, when I was planning this series out and when I saw actually a couple of weeks ago that we planned this text on this week after the election, I thought, I oh, see, that seems fitting, I guess. I don't know what else you're going to preach. But this is a strange story. It's a story of judgment and surprises, and it's just, it's just kind of weird. But if you keep it in context, this is the third of three parables that Jesus tells to the chief priests and the elders in Jerusalem. It's a parable of judgment. And the theme of this parable is the same as the, the theme, the meaning and message of the previous two, that God is bringing judgment on the religious establishment because they have not produced good fruit. And judgment's coming. Now, because the theme's so similar to the last two, what I wanted to do today as we look at this parable is I wanted to pull back just a little bit, zoom out, and l- let this parable speak to us about the nature of God's judgment. To zoom out and say, what, is, what can we learn about the doctrine of divine judgment from this story that Jesus told? And the reason I want to press in here is because I know for many, the whole notion of judgment, hell, all of this stuff, God's wrath, it kind of grates against your sensibilities like fingers on a chalkboard. But I'm convinced I'm convinced that if you take out the unpleasant parts of Christianity, the unpleasant passages like this one that have some teeth and stir some discomfort, you end up at the same time gutting gutting some of the most precious and comforting truths in the scriptures. What I mean is if you take out any talk of sin, judgment, or wrath, you lose anything, any meaningful sense of things like mercy and grace and love. And I think one of the reasons the church lost a voice in society is because we've tried to soften some of the harder truths in Scripture. We've ended up robbing some of the gravity of the situation of what the Bible teaches and speaks to. We miss the weight of it. And what I want to show you this morning is Jesus teaches us some very, very weighty things, and some of it's hard, but it's filled with such wonder and hope and invitation. And so we're going to look at this passage under three headings. The first is the feast. What, does, what are we supposed to learn from the feast? The second is the fire. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the fool at the end who's not dressed appropriately. But starting 
with the feast, because of the strangeness and violence of this parable, it's really easy to overlook verse 2, but verse 2 is really important. I mean, that's the whole shebang, really, of setting up what, what the judgment is surrounding. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Jesus is saying, do you want to understand who I am, why I've come, what I am ushering in, what God is up to in the world, the kingdom of heaven? What is it like? What could I compare it to? It's like a king who's going to throw the most amazing wedding celebration the world has ever known for his one and only son. In our day, wedding receptions tend to last a few hours, but in that day, wedding receptions would last several days, sometimes even a week. It's the biggest party that would be thrown. And of all the pictures that Jesus gives to describe the day when his kingdom comes in fullness, the picture of a feast, a feast is his absolute favorite. He tells us, you know, when we look at the details of, of the parable, that Jesus, he's saying, you want to understand the fullness of my kingdom? Imagine a good king celebrating the birth of his only son. What's that king going to do? He's not going to hold back. He's not going to serve, you know, like at weddings at our day, typically overcooked chicken with some kind of sauce to make it easier to go down. He's going to go out into his field and pick the finest of his calves, the fatted calves. You know, USDA choice. He's going to go into his wine cellar and pick out the bottles that have been there for ages. He's going to scour his kingdom for the very best of the best of the best. Because this is a feast for his son. And Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of God coming is like. It's a feast. Now, depending if you grew up in the church or you know, your, your early, a lot of our impressions of Christianity are shaped when we're young, whether we were Christians or not. But I know for me, when I was young, I always had this notion that God was anti-fun, anti-joy, anti-pleasure. That God was kind of, you know, the man upstairs who's watching us and wants us to live really, really good lives. And if we do a good enough job, he might welcome us in. And what Jesus shows us here is that's not the nature of our God. The nature of our God is a God who not only invites us to a feast, but he invented the feast. You know, it's interesting. The very first miracle Jesus ever performed, do you know what it was? It wasn't healing the sick. It wasn't giving sight to the blind. It wasn't giving food to the hungry. The first miracle Jesus ever performed happened at a wedding feast. They ran out of wine, which meant the party was about to be over. And Jesus took some water that was used for ceremonial washing of feet. It's kind of gross. And he transformed it into the finest of wine, the greatest wine that anyone had ever tasted. Think about that. His very first miracle, Jesus has miraculous powers how am I going to put these on display? He turns a dying party into a legendary party. Why? I mean, could you imagine if that happened today? <laughs> you have someone with these miraculous powers 
and maybe it got on social media that they used their powers to save a dying party. I mean, they'd be roasted alive today, wouldn't they? Oh, you can do this wonderful stuff. Why don't you help all the hurting people or feed the hungry or alleviate suffering? You use your powers in this trivial way to turn water into wine? What, what's this about? Why? Why is that his first miracle? Well, because in the New Testament, Jesus' miracles are never referred to as miracles. They're always referred to as signs. His miracles, they're never just raw displays of power. They're always signs, they're pictures pointing to who he is and what he's up to in our world, what he's come to do and what he's come to accomplish. And the first sign he ever performed was to take a dying party and make it one of the most legendary parties in the history of the world. And the reason he did this is because the celebration feast is at the very heart of why Jesus Christ came to this earth. I want you to think about the great feasts you've taken part of, part in, sorry. Some of the greatest feasting you've ever, maybe it was Thanksgiving, that's kind of the easy one to go to. One year, my family, we got tired of turkey, and so we got a huge beef tenderloin instead. And we're a red meat and potatoes kind of family. I know it's hard to believe looking at me, but uh, that's what we... And so we made this, oh my gosh, it was the most amazing dinner. Think about it for you. What are the great feasts you've had? Great feasts are typically marked by great food, laughter, joy, a sense of warmth, belonging. You're not alone. I mean, a good feast has the power to temporarily banish your hunger, your sadness, your weariness. And Jesus, what he teaches is that he's going to throw a feast one day that will banish hunger, sadness, suffering, and misery once and for all. It'll be the feast to end all feasts. It's the feast that the prophet Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 25, where he says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines, Isaiah continues. He will destroy the shroud of death that hangs over us, wipe away all of our tears, and rid us of our disgrace. Isaiah is prophesying about what Christ has come to do and about that last final feast when the shroud of death will be removed once and for all, and we will celebrate that death is no more, sin is no more, evil and sadness and pain and tears are no more. The way we will celebrate is we're going to sit down and have a feast. So if we're going to understand this parable, if we're going to understand any of the parables of Jesus, understand what the Bible teaches about judgment, you have to see first and foremost that the world has been summoned to a party. All of humanity has been summoned to a feast that will put all other feasts to shame at the table of the Lamb of God. The feast. So then what are we to make of the fire? My second point. I mean, the parable is jarring. It starts with this awesome imagery. And then a few verses later, the king's destroying people and burning the city down 
And it seems like things have escalated rather quickly. And I know, I've heard over the years, people say, this is what I can't stomach about Christianity, the idea that some people will be in the feast and some people won't. Some people are going to experience everlasting life and some people are going to experience judgment and torment and hell. It seems so cruel. A lot of people wrestle with this. And that's where I think this parable is so helpful. Looking at this parable, how did the people outside the feast end up outside the feast? The people who didn't get to partake, what caused that? Look with me at verse 3. The king prepares the wedding feast, verse 3, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. This is a bit of a head scratcher. Remember, this is a king. This isn't just like your neighbor. This is the king who ruled over all, and he invited people to come to the feast. They knew that when the king throws a party, he throws a party. You know, this isn't a halfway done party. This is going to be an amazing thing. And so he, he invites, sends the invitation out, and the people refuse to come. Verse 4, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. He's trying to woo them. Like maybe they didn't understand. Maybe they said, thought you heard feet instead of feast. I don't know. Go and tell them. See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Like it's starting to get cold if you don't get here soon. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm. Another do his business. This is where it starts to turn. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. How did the people who ended up outside the feast end up outside the feast? They refused to come. And the king, he didn't just send one invitation, he sent multiple invitations. And the people, some people, they refused to come, said they had other things to do. Which if it was someone else inviting, maybe, but when the king invites you to his wedding feast for his son, you don't say you have to landscape your yard. Now others were more forthright, and they seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. See, what all the people who ended up outside the feast had in common, they refused not just to come to the feast. In refusing to come to the feast, they were actually refusing to acknowledge the king as the king. The subjects didn't realize they were subjects. And so the king, he responds in verse 7. The king was angry. Rightfully so. He's throwing a wedding feast for his one and only son. His people won't come. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers, the ones who killed his servants, and he burned their city. And that might seem jarring and shocking, but what else is the king supposed to do in that situation? How many servants does he send inviting people in that the people put to death before he finally says enough? Is he supposed to just relinquish his kingdom? 
over to the subjects who don't want to follow him? Let's step out of the parable for a second. Think with me for a minute. If there is a God who created the universe and filled it with trillions of galaxies, each of which are filled with hundreds of billions of stars, and God upholds all of that by the word of his power without breaking a sweat, he created everything in this earth, from the mountains to the sea, to every organism, to you and to I. If that's who God is, then when he calls you and invites you to his feast, you cannot say, sounds interesting, maybe I'll explore it when I get older. You cannot say, I've got some other things on my plate at the moment. When he summons you, you have to respond. When he summons you, you have to drop what you're doing and turn to him. You see, what kept those outside the feast out of the feast, it wasn't their bad deeds. It was their pride. Growing up, I don't know why, I just had this notion, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. Maybe you did as well. What we see in this text is that the king actually later will read. He invites people, good and bad. You you all can come to the feast. What distinguishes between who's in and who's out, the people who are out are prideful. They refuse to honor the king as king. They refuse to turn to him. The people who in are humble. They humble themselves under his authority and he welcomes them in. So as we think about this theme of judgment in the scriptures. I hope what you see here, one of the things you see is that the king's vengeance isn't all that surprising. What's surprising is his patience. The king is not volatile, short-tempered, unpredictable. He doesn't fly off the handle at the first misstep of his people. Instead, he is slow to anger, filled with grace and compassion, abounding In love, after the first wave of rejections, he responds by sending more servants. And after the people put servant, servant after servant to death, finally, he brings judgment. But judgment is not his instinctual first response. It's his last resort. If you go back to Genesis 3, God's first response to sin, what was it? Was it judgment? No, his first response was to seek his people out. As Adam and Eve were hiding in the garden, first thing God did is say, where are you? And the story of the Bible is a story of a God who in love relentlessly pursues a rebellious people. And God is incredibly patient, but he's not infinitely patient. And if people perpetually stand and refuse to acknowledge their creator as their creator, if they don't listen, I mean, in this particular context, God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet to Israel, and they just, they kind of plugged their ears and put the prophets to death. And now he's sending their, his son, who they're going to put to death. Eventually, God's going to say, fine, you were refusing to listen. You've always refused to, refused to listen to me, refused to acknowledge me as king. What else is he going to do except for bring judgment? C.S. Lewis, he writes this. He says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? 
If you want to just reject the doctrine of hell, what are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins? And at all costs, to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? (laughs) But he has done so. That's what he's done. On Calvary, are you asking him to forgive them? They will not be forgiven. Are you asking him to leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. A lot of times when we think of hell, we think of fire, and that's a biblical theme. And I think the fire there is often used to communicate that hell will be a place of disintegration where things fall apart and get consumed. But there's another image used in the Bible of hell as outer darkness. Hell is a place where, I mean, think about it. If God is a source of all goodness and truth and beauty and warmth, then to be cut off from him and to constantly reject him puts you in a place where there's no goodness or beauty or truth or warmth. If God is all light, then apart from him is all darkness. You know, in um, Dante's Inferno, the last and final ring of hell at the center of it. You know what's there? It's not a lake of fire. It's a lake of ice. It's a lake where people freeze over because God has handed them over to their their desires. In many ways, God has said to them, you want to be cut off from me? So be it. I think it was actually Lewis who said elsewhere that hell is the greatest monument in the history of the world to human freedom. As we think about our church, as we think about our call, what does it mean to step into the mission of God and to obey the call of God? Well, one, it means to receive the invitation But two, it means to recognize that our calling as followers of Jesus is to go and invite others into the feast, to make sure everyone knows this feast is happening. They are invited to come. The feast, the fire, and then the last thing, last point is the fool. We read in verse 8 after... The king brings judgment on the people who murdered his servants. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now that's like, that's a perfect ending. I mean, the real ending is the perfect ending because Jesus said it. But from my perspective, that's such a great ending. But then Jesus tells us about this other guy. When the king came in, verse 11, to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
It's such a bizarre ending, and this ending has confused many Christians over the years because it seems like the king is saying, hurry up, the food's ready, anyone can come. Don't let it get cold. And then someone shows up and like they, they just, they weren't wearing the right clothes. Maybe they showed up in like a powder blue tuxedo or something and the king sees it and says, all right. And doesn't just say, hey, you're not allowed in, go change. Binds them hand and foot and casts them into the outer darkness, the place of ultimate judgment and misery. What is going on here? Well, remember, this is a parable. And the parables of Jesus are often filled with the strange, the dramatic, and the disproportionate. And I think what Jesus is communicating to us are two truths that are, seem very, very hard for people to hold together. The first truth is that anyone can come to this feast. It says that the servants went out to the street corners place where the rich, the poor, foreigners, immigrants, prostitutes, tax collectors, the good, the bad, the people who were religious their whole life, the people who thumbed their nose at God. The servants went out and just indiscriminately invited everyone to the king's feast, which means anyone can come. Anyone can enter into the kingdom of God. Now, some of you, you have skeletons in your closet. Some of you, you have things you are deeply ashamed of. You have big secrets. You have sin, ongoing sin in your life. What we see in this passage, it doesn't matter. Good and bad. Anyone can come. I mean, God, one of the pictures I love about God in this, he is committed to seeing every seat at this feast be filled. He doesn't want anything to go to waste. So truth number one is anyone can come. But the second truth that we have to hold with that is you cannot come on your own terms. Something about this fool's dress was offensive and insulting to the king. He was thumbing his nose at the king. There's been so much debate over the years in the church about the meaning of this parable. Uh, going back to Augustine, he argued that in a situation like this, a wedding in that day, a king would actually be the one who would provide the wedding garments. And so he'd invite you, not only would he invite you, he'd give you clothes to wear when you got there. And so the, Augustine would say the only reason this guy's improperly dressed is because he refused the gift of the king. And he refused to put it on. And a lot of Christians have taught through the years that, which is 100% true, that what God requires of us, what he demands of us, he also provides for us in Christ. That this represents the righteousness of God. And Isaiah 61 gives this imagery. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. And I want to say that's such good theology. It's true. It's beautiful. But in this context, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I don't think the wedding clothes here just mean, do you believe in Jesus? Remember, this is the third and three parables. And for the last several chapters, Jesus has been talking. I mean, he's talking to the chief priests and the elders. He's been talking about fruit. He's been talking to them about not just what they say they believe, but about their lives what they embody. 
And then Jesus ends this parable with the really cryptic line, for many are called, but few are chosen. Anyone else ever struggled with that verse before? Am I the only one? Kind of seems like God's like, anyone can come, but secretly only like three of you are allowed in. What does this mean? Well, I think what, what Jesus is saying here, many are called. He's saying the invitation goes out to everyone. But when he says few are chosen, remember who he's talking to. The chief priests and the elders of Israel. Who is Israel? God's chosen people. That's how they understood themselves. And when Jesus talks about chosen, there would be rich overtones for them of thinking of their identity as God's chosen people, as the Jews. And Jesus is saying, all of y'all are invited, but not all of you are truly chosen. The chosen are not those who've simply been born with Jewish blood, who've been born of a certain pedigree. The chosen are those who hear the call of God, drop what they're doing, repent, and respond in faith to me, is what he's saying. That's the chosen. Now, this was shocking for the chief priests and and elders. It was just assumed that the the great feasts that God had promised throughout his scriptures, it was just assumed that there would only be Jewish people there. Now, there is debate. Would all Jews be there or would some be excluded? And what Jesus is saying here is there's actually going to be outsiders in and people who think they're on the inside who are going to be out. And that's where we get to the heart of this and the word of this for us. This parable doesn't just teach us about the nature of God's judgment. It also warns us against the sin of presumption. The chief priests and elders, they were so certain, so overwhelmingly confident in their position because they were raised as good Jewish boys, because they'd memorized the Torah, because they prayed, because they did all, they were so certain. And Jesus tells this parable to fire a warning shot across the bow and say, it doesn't matter what you say with your mouth. What matters is who you are and the orientation of your heart. Anyone can come, but you can't come on your own terms. This is the tension of Christianity. It's free. Anyone. Anyone can come. But it costs you everything. When you step into the kingdom, everything goes on the table. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know the invitation goes forth to you. Will you respond? If you you are here and you are a Christian, I want you to know, as we've said for the last several weeks, Jesus cares about who we are and who we're becoming. He doesn't just care about what we believe in the abstract. He cares about do our beliefs, because this is where we know what we really believe. Do our beliefs actually trickle down and shape our lives? He cares about fruit. Now, 
What's hard is, I know for some people, passages like this can stir. They're already anxious. They already feel like God will never love them. This is not a passage meant to stir anxiety, but sobriety. And we actually look at our lives and we ask, is there fruit? And the fruit Jesus cares about, last week we talked about justice, mercy, faithfulness. If I could go back, I would add at the center, the heart of it all, the fruit Jesus is looking for is repentance. Repentance, not just like, I'm sorry for what I've done. That's certainly part of it. Repentance that recognizes that we are flawed, that he has the words of life, and that we hang on his words and let his words shape our life. For us to claim that we are followers of the king, but not lead and love and live from a place of justice, mercy, faithfulness, repentance. It's a real disconnect. It would be like showing up to a black tie event in a blue powder tuxedo. It would be hard for anyone to not take that as just an absolute mockery. Not recognizing. And so as we're in the midst of turbulent times as a society, this is a great time for us to examine and to say, Lord, maybe, may I be so overwhelmed with the mercy you've shown me in Christ that I would live a life marked by mercy, repentance, and grace, and hope. May I live a life marked that just has a posture of inviting others in, not trying to keep others out. As we come to the Lord's table, we remember that the night of Jesus' betrayal, he had a feast with his disciples. He took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body that's broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the cup of my blood poured out for you. And he instructed his disciples to continue to do this regularly, to remember what he has accomplished on our behalf. But we also know that this meal was just a foretaste of the promise that on the last day, when Jesus wipes away every tear, all who've trusted in him, all who've responded to the invitation to the wedding feast, we will get to sit down at the end of history and enjoy the feast that will end all feasts. So with that in mind, that I invite you to pray with me. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.